Dr. Stephen Gundry is the director of the International Heart and Lung Institute in Palm Springs, California, and the founder and director of the Center for Restorative Medicine in Palm Springs in Santa Barbara. He's the best-selling author of The Longevity Paradox and The Plant Paradox, and today he's here to chat about his latest book titled Unlocking the Keto Code, the revolutionary new science of keto that offers more benefits without deprivation. It's great to have him back on the show. Stephen, welcome back. Thanks a lot. Good to see you again, Jason. Always great to have you. Another provocative book, Unlocking the Keto Code the revolutionary new science of keto that offers more benefits without deprivation, which sounds pretty good to me. So I'm going to start with the big question. What did we get wrong about keto in the first place? Boy, I'll tell you, we probably got everything wrong, including me. And it was actually all there, the, the real, what ketones did in the literature, but I think everybody got kind of sidetracked with thinking that ketones were some perfect fuel, some super fuel that supercharged our mitochondria and made us sufficient fat burners. And sadly, uh, research from Dr. George Cahill and Dr. Owens at Harvard and also from Dr. Veach at the NIH uh, years ago proved that this actually wasn't true and that ketones worked in a completely different way than a super fuel. But somehow, I guess we neglected to read all that. So when I was writing The Energy Paradox, my last book, I was doing a chapter trying to explain how ketones have worked, particularly in the mitochondria. And I like to document with research whatever I say. And so, you know, going through some articles explaining the mechanisms of how ketones work, and I'm going, wait a minute, you know, this isn't what I've been saying. This isn't what keto experts have been saying, this is actually 180 degrees opposite of what I'd been taught and taught for the last 20 odd years. And that actually set me down a rabbit hole. And as soon as I finished the energy paradox, I, I got on the phone with my agent, with my publishers, and I said, holy God, there's a book here. And you know, I, I, I want to write this book. And they said, no, no, and stop. I said, no, you know, let me just tell you what I found. And they said, oh my gosh, you know, there's a book here. And so that's how Unlocking the Keto Goat came about. So there are many health benefits to keto, but there are also downsides for many. Can you, can you talk about some of those downsides or, or, or pitfalls, if you will? Yeah. First of all, the, there are definite benefits to having ketone production and and actually the book is, uh, here you go. Here's how to get the benefits of ketones as a signaling molecule. Here's how to produce them without being on a ketogenic diet. And here's how to get the benefits of ketones by eating other foods that actually will get you the same signaling as ketones. So why should you do that? Well, there's a lot of downsides uh, to a ketogenic diet. I think one of the most impressive is, again, work out of Harvard and the NIH that showed in human volunteers that even at full ketosis, humans will only get 30% of their energy from burning ketones. The rest has to come from free fatty acids and sugars or protein. 
And what's even more probably distressing is that even at full ketosis, this miracle fuel ketones that's supposed to be perfect for your brain, your brain still wants 30 to 40% of its fuel is glucose and, you know, screw the ketones. So we now know that ketones really aren't a very good fuel and people who persist with the idea often long-term reap problems. And a couple of those problems are ketones are actually signaling molecules that tell mitochondria that times are rough, that were starving. That was the original way they were made. And that you got to protect yourselves at all costs, you mitochondria, because if we lose you guys, that's the end of the game because we need you to make energy. And what happens in prolonged ketosis is mitochondria literally get a message to protect themselves so much that they will divert all protein manufacturing to making more of their proteins and they will stop the manufacturing of muscle protein because muscles are energy hogs. They will also actually produce insulin resistance in muscles to protect the organism from using too many calories during starvation. And this is the signaling molecule ketone saying to do this. Lastly, we know that they do that they produce insulin resistance. And that's why so many long-term keto dieters who are doing 24, seven, seven days a week, end up with elevated blood sugars. And I see in my own practice, a number of devout ketogenic dieters develop insulin resistance and elevated blood sugars. They're apoplectic that this is happening to them. In fact, I profile a woman in the book about that. So that's a big drawback. Number two, there is absolutely, if you like the cholesterol theory of heart disease, I don't particularly like it, but if you like it, then a large amount of keto dieters will produce a lot of elevated, small, dense LDLs. They'll have elevated LDLs. But what's more disturbing to me in my practice, when I have people really dive in whole hog into a ketogenic diet or cousin of keto, a carnivore diet, not only do these numbers go up, but probably more disturbingly, inflammation on the walls of blood vessels go up and vessel flexibility, vessel flexibility, the ability of vessels to uh, contract and expand, they stiffen. And it's really across the board and it shocks some of my, you know, experimenters and I want them to experiment when they'll do a three month experiment at this and come back and they say, boy, you know, I really feel good. And then we look at their numbers and they go, oh my gosh, you know, look at this. And I said, tell you what, let's, you know, let's stop this and let's go back let's recheck things in a month. Let's add back things that I talk about in the book, like polyphenols and fiber. And long, in a month, all those things return to normal. And so why we would want to get these bad effects on our blood vessels, if you can prove that they're there, and in my practice we do, then that seems like not a good reason to, to do a ketogenic diet. So that's just a couple of good reasons. Right. And that's a very good reason if you're concerned about your long-term cardiovascular health. 
Yeah. Uh, as I go in, I'm getting my annual CIMT scan, you know, so I am one who's concerned about my long-term cardiovascular health. Look, the, the book is called Unlocking the Keto Code. And, and of course you've got eight keys to unlock the keto code. And I'll, I'll start with the first one. You mentioned starvation. So a, a, not a cousin of starvation, if you will, is intermittent fasting, depending on how you like to think about fasting in general or intermittent eat, eating, different word choice. But what role should intermittent fasting play in your opinion? I think, you know, energy paradox was all about that, but I think really, if I was going to take away one thing to really have incredible longevity and, and good health span, I think uh, intermittent fasting or time controlled eating, uh, restricting our eating window is really the number one unlocking the keto code. And I say that based on some pretty impressive animal evidence that's come out from the NIH with uh, Dr. Rafael DeCabo that I profile in, in this book. And what he looked at all the calorie restriction literature and calorie restriction, as many of us know, uh, is probably the best way, the only way to expend, expend lifespan. The problem is nobody wants to do it. And it's really hard reducing your calories 30%. And it makes for a lot of depression, among other things. But DeCabo actually looked at all the literature and he said, you know, I have a feeling we have this wrong. If we calorie restrict animals, we control their feeding schedule. And what happens is that we put out their food at a particular time of day. And if you don't get 30% as many calories as the other guy does, you're hungry. And when that food arrives, you eat it very quickly. And I think that it's actually the fact that they're eating this meager amount of food quickly and then fasting for the rest of the 24 hours is actually what's causing the effect of calorie restriction. So he did some beautiful design experiments and I won't bore you, but what he did was either calorie restricted animals and put their food out at three o'clock in the afternoon. He took another group of animals that got a full day's food supply, but he put those animals food out at three o'clock in the afternoon. And those animals would eat their food in about 10 to 12 hours and they'd be fasting for 14 to 12, to 14 hours. That's a long time for a mouse. And then the third group got to nibble on food all day long. The food was in their cage 24 hours a day. And he looked at their lifespan. And the first thing he looked at was metabolic flexibility. And those of you who listened to you and me know that metabolic flexibility is probably one of the keys to long-term health, the ability of our mitochondria to switch on a dime from burning glucose as a fuel to burning free fatty acids. It's some scary papers that are in this book, 50% of normal weight Americans have no metabolic flexibility. And that's a shock. 50% of normal weight individuals, overweight individuals, 88% of overweight individuals are metabolically inflexible. If you go to obese individuals, 99.5 of them have no metabolic flexibility. So what's that saying is the vast majority of us are doomed if, if we don't change this. So getting back to intermittent fast, the mice who were eating all day long had no metabolic flexibility. Only the 
calorie-restricted guys or the time-restricted guys had metabolic flexibility. Even the group that got a full calorie load. When they looked at longevity, the time-restricted mice actually had 11% longer lifespan than the guys who were eating all day, eating the same amount of calories. And that group had no amyloid beta or tau production in any of their tissues, unlike the all-day eaters who had oodles of amyloid and, and tau production. So if you extrapolate that, it means that the average human, if they did that, would live uh, 10 more good years than we are right now. So that's a, that's a potent intervention that's actually pretty easy to do. And in the book, I hold people's hands and take them one hour a day, just a change of one hour a day of when they start their morning and get them to about a six to eight hour eating window in five to six weeks. And the good news is, based on research out of Chicago, is if you do that program five days a week and then take the weekend off, just you know, relax, don't stress yourself, you'll still get the results as if you were doing it seven days a week, but you'll have much better compliance. You'll stick with the program. Excellent. So as simple as getting to a 16 to 18 hour fast Monday through Friday and call it 13 hours on the weekends, circadian. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and there's even a beautiful human study with Italian athletes, which I profiled in the book, which really brings us home. Because people say, well, a mouse is a mouse. Come on. What about humans? So they took Italian athletes, cyclists, and they put them on a three-month training table where they all had to eat the exact same food. The only thing they did between the two groups is the one group had to eat all their calories in a 12-hour window. They had breakfast at 8 a.m., they had lunch at 1 p.m., they had to finish dinner at 8, 8 p.m., 12-hour eating window. The other group had to have breakfast at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, lunch at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and finish dinner at 8 o'clock, seven-hour eating window. At the end, only the time-restricted eating guys lost weight. The other group lost no weight, even though they were eating the exact same calories, exact same food. They had identical exercise performance, which is good news. They had identical muscle mass, which is good news, despite losing weight. And what I think is the best exciting news is that the time-restricted eating guys plummeted their insulin-like growth factor, IGF-1. And as far as we have right now, IGF-1 is probably the best single blood measurement we have right now that's accessible to most people of how we're going to do from a longevity standpoint, how our mTOR receptors are turned on or turned off. So just by compressing your eating window to seven hours has potent effects. And if you're looking for ketosis, to lose weight, well, what the heck? Let's just compress our eating window and you'll lose weight. So before we move on to point number two, which you talk about polyphenols, I'm gonna stand IGF-1 for a second. For those listening or in a runoff to, to Quest Labs or call up their functional medicine doc and say, well, what's my number? Where can I get this? Where do you wanna be? So I, you know, I have the privilege of living in Palm Springs and I get to study a lot of super old people, 95 and above. And, you know, Palm Springs is affectionately known as God's waiting room, not for bad reasons. But 
so if you look at these super old people, and other people have looked at this as well, these people tend to run an IGF-1 of about 50 to 7. Now, there's really three factors that I've found and other people have found that influence this number. Number one is the amount of sugar and or the amount of sugar-containing foods or sugar-converting foods that we eat. Number two is animal protein. And that includes eggs, that includes fish, chicken, that includes cheese. And number three is time-restricted eating. And what's fun is I've had patients play with all three of these. And some of the, the factors are actually fascinating in the plant paradox. I wrote about a group of calorie-restricted individuals who were studied by St. Louis University and asked to eat a vegan calorie-restricted diet, just exchange their animal protein for plants. And their insulinic growth factor plummeted 50 points. Just wow. in. Wow. Just to stay there for a second, because I think that's fascinating. It, with IGF-1, is it still like, it, has your view on meat consumption changed? Because I, I know you, you lean heavily plant-based. Yeah. Well, so these are three factors that are modifiable. I have a colleague who's a, a carnivore physician, and he touts that his IGF-1 is about 157, I believe. And he's a young guy, and that's a really good number. So is it better? One clarification, sorry. Lower is, it better, is high, better. Lower is better. Yeah, exactly. Lower is better. But he's a young guy. We tend to raise our IGF runs up until about age 40. And then, quite frankly, you better start seeing that thing come down. And if you don't, all sorts of mischief uh, is afoot. I can't tell you the number of people I have with cancer who, unnoticed to them, were running IGF-1s of 250, 200. And, you know, they're shocked that and IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor. And uh, Jason, as you and I know, there is nothing in us as we get older that we want to grow, <laughs> right? So getting back to meat. So that's one way of stimulating mTOR because the amino acids in animal protein are far more activative of mTOR than the amino acids in plants. But this guy has a time-restricted eating, so he only eats six hours a day. He doesn't tell anybody that. I know it, and we talk off camera. I said, that's not fair. People are hearing you and saying, hey, you know, meat eating doesn't raise IGF-1. Well, yes, it does, but you're taking another piece of that and deciding that's how you're going to modulate it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Fascinating. And it's an important one to pay attention to. I think mine, I was just quickly looking, I think when I was eating a lot more meat, I want to say it was that I'm 47 for context. It was in like the, the hundreds. And I think the last time I did blood work, I'm at like 90. So it was going down, but it was higher and it just looked lot, lots of metrics and lots of markers to pay attention to. And it's one we should be mindful of. Yeah. And there, you know, and that's not the purpose of this probably discussion of the book, but I still worry about new 5GC, the sugar molecule in beef, lamb, and pork that uh, clearly causes an autoimmune attack on our blood vessels. 
I also really worry for most people about the effect of animal protein and fat consumption on the production of TMAO, which is, if you believe the Cleveland Clinic and pretty good folks, TMAO is pretty nasty stuff, not only for our blood vessels, but it's beginning to be implicated in kidney health and in brain health. And we know that for most people, gut bacteria will convert animal proteins and animal fats into TMAO. Now there's ways around it and we don't have to go into that, but that may be another reason to modulate our consumption. So to close the loop on meat, before we move on to the next point, polyphenols, in your opinion, in terms of frequency, is it once a week, once a month? And I know it's hard to generalize, but if you had to, how do you think about consumption of, of meat? Well, so my wife and I kind of describe ourselves as veg aquarians. And by that, we mean that most of the things we do is eat plants and we eat a lot of plants, but we eat actually wild shellfish, wild fish on the weekends. And quite frankly, about every three months, we'll have a grass-fed, grass-finished steak. I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, after all. So I don't think it is, you know, these things are the ultimate poison. And I think we can modulate this. There's lots of ways to do this. Got it. Okay. So makes a lot of sense. Still same point of view on meat, probably like once a quarter. makes a lot of sense. Moving on to polyphenols. Got to move on to point number two. What role should polyphenols play? So this was one of the shockers as I started to dive into ketones as a signaling molecule. And... There was a drug for weight loss that was very popular in the 1930s. And it was called 2,4-dinitrophenol, 2,4-DNP. And it, it came about because uh, munition workers in France and Germany in World War I were noted to be incredibly skinny, even though they were eating huge amounts of food. And they were always running a temperature. And nobody quite knew what that was until a couple doctors at Stanford in the early 1930s said, gee whiz, they were being exposed to 2,4-DNP. And what we know about DNP is that it really speeds up your metabolic rate. It just, you know, your basal metabolic rate goes through the sky. And that's why these guys were running temperatures. And that's why they were losing weight. They literally couldn't keep weight on we're going to market this as a weight loss drug. And so over 100,000 prescriptions for DNP were made in the United States alone and many more around the world. And it really worked. If you took just a small dose of DNP daily, you would lose a pound a week. But at higher doses, you would lose five pounds a week. Now, I mean, think about that. Talk about a miracle weight loss drug, five pounds a week. It was so miraculous until people started getting very high temperatures. They began to have thyroid issues. They developed cataracts, and this was before cataract surgery was possible. So believe it or not, they went blind losing weight. And what's the purpose of losing weight if you can't look at yourself in the cute clothes, right? <laughs> and they started to die. They started to die like flies. And what was happening was they didn't know. And the FDA, uh, as actually one of its first 
official acts banned DNP for sale for a prescription. Uh, you can still find DNP on the dark web. But a lot of research subsequently has been done on, well, how the heck did DNP work? Well, dinitrophenol, here's that word, phenol. And it turns out the phenol ring is actually one of the most powerful, what's called mitochondrial uncouplers there is. And what was happening was the DNP was the first unknown mitochondrial uncoupler. And long story short, mitochondrial uncoupling basically instructs mitochondria to do a caloric bypass on the food you eat and to take 30, 40, 50% of the calories that you eat or that are in your fat stores. And rather than throw them down the electron transport chain and make ATP, to basically throw them outside doors, emergency exits that I use in the book, and never use them for making energy. And the word uncoupling came from normally, we want to couple oxygen with protons and electrons to produce ATP. And the uncoupling came from, you're actually going to burn calories without coupling to ATP production. And that sounds really stupid uh, on the first place, but it turns out it's incredibly smart for protecting mitochondria. So let me take you circuitously to uncoupling and polyphenols. You and I and your listeners know that polyphenols are those bright, colorful, orange, red, purple, blue colors in plant leaves, in plant seeds, plant fruits, vegetables. And plants have to make energy and plants have their own mitochondria, which are called chloroplasts. Now, our mitochondria take oxygen, take sugar, and combine them to produce ATP and byproduct CO2. Plants do the exact opposite. Their chloroplasts take photons, sunlight, take oxygen, and then combine that to actually produce glucose, sugar, oxygen, and actually fiber, cell walls. So sunlight is necessary for a plant to make all these things, just as oxygen is necessary for our mitochondria to do this. But sunlight damages the plant's mitochondria, just like oxygen damages our mitochondria. It can't live with them, can't live without them. So what does a plant do? The plant makes polyphenols to protect itself from harsh conditions, including sunlight. And how do these polyphenols work? They uncouple the plant chloroplast mitochondria. So they literally don't have to work so hard and can repair themselves. Fast forward, when we eat plant polyphenols, number one, our bacteria think they're delicious. They are polyphenols to our bacteria. But in turn, those bacteria convert these polyphenols into substances that can actually uncouple our mitochondria. So, you know, it's kind of like the circle of life. It's like, holy cow, plants are making polyphenols to protect their mitochondria. We, the plants, 
now their polyphenols are feeding our gut bacteria, which in turn then uncouple our mitochondria. And that's why polyphenols are so good for you. And as you know, I have a supplement and food company, Gundry MD, and I market thermogenic plant compounds, thermogenic. Well, it turns out that when we uncouple mitochondria, we produce heat. And we knew that a lot of these polyphenols did produce heat, thermogenic compounds. But we didn't know why they produced heat. Well, now we actually know that they are producing heat by instructing our mitochondria to waste fuel and generate heat. So I think we're all sold on the power of polyphenols. And as we all get ready to put together our grocery list, I'd be remiss not to ask, what are your favorite polyphenol rich foods, herbs, and spices? What's on your list? What should we all be putting on our grocery list as we go shopping? You know, I guess I'm infamous for saying the only purpose of food is to get olive oil into your mouth. Uh, <laughs> and, and olive oil is actually oleic acid, which is a monounsaturated fat, it is not a special fat. Um, people should get over that. But olive oil is special because of the polyphenols, which include hydroxytyrosol, which is a potent mitochondrial uncoupler. And, you know, we could go on and on about societies that use huge amounts of olive oil and have great health. And we can go on and on about studies like the Predimed study, forcing people with coronary artery disease to use a liter of olive oil per week for five years and showing it dramatically reduces heart disease compared to a low fat American diet and so forth. So olive oil is great. Polyphenols are also present in places where you wouldn't particularly think they are. For instance, coffee and tea are rich with polyphenols, all the dark colored berries. Now the problem with fruit in general, and I've talked about this before, we have hybridized fruit for sugar content. And just this morning up here in the lodge, I kid you not, I should have taken a picture of it. They have blueberries that were bigger than the grapes. And that's, these are Franken foods. So what I people to do is actually do reverse juicing. Go buy organic berries, go buy organic fruits, put it in your juicer. I know you got one sitting on a counter someplace or in the closet. Throw the juice away. The juice is just pure mainlining fructose. Take the fiber, take the pulp, stir it into plain goat yogurt, great plain sheep yogurt, plain coconut yogurt. You'll have the best food you can ever have, and you'll get a double whammy of uncoupling. The polyphenols will do it. If you have too many, throw them in a silicone ice cube tray, freeze them, pop them out. I've got some desserts using them, and you can just load up on polyphenols that way. So you mentioned olive oil, and in terms of oils, in reading the book, it sounds like you're also a very big fan of MCT. Yeah. And that was one of the real eye-openers in, in researching Unlocking the Keto Code. MCT oil has been a part of my ketogenic diet uh, for the last 20 years. And one of the beauties of MCT oils that hopefully people know is that MCTs are medium-chain triglycerides, that these fats are absorbed in a totally different way than any other fat. Almost all fats have to be carried through the wall of our gut by carrier molecules called chylomicrons. 
MCTs don't need that. They actually go directly through the wall of our gut and take a direct pass into our liver. In the liver, MCTs are converted automatically into ketone bodies, ketones. So the exciting thing about MCTs is, as I mentioned, the vast majority of Americans are metabolically inflexible. That means that if you or I, hopefully not you or I, stop eating normally about eight hours after our last bite of food, we would actually start generating ketones in our liver by releasing free fatty acids from our fat cells. And by about 12 hours of not eating, we're pretty much pumping out the ketones. But most Americans don't know that insulin actually stops the release of free fatty acids from fat cells. It blocks their release. So the vast majority of Americans, when they stop eating food or even eat a high fat diet, can't release fat from fat cells for days, sometimes weeks. And normally you cannot make ketones except from free fatty acids going to the liver. And that's why so many people get, you know, the Adkins blues or the keto flu and they you know, the headache, the brain fog, they have poor muscle performance. That's because most people can't make that shift. Now enter MCTs. MCTs, regardless of your insulin status, make ketones. So the miraculous thing is one tablespoon of MCT oil has been shown in humans generate, generate an adequate level of ketosis to produce the effects we want from ketones, which is mitochondrial uncoupling. So great ad, put, put a tablespoon of MCT in your black coffee. Maybe, maybe grass-fed ghee. Are we, we okay with grass-fed ghee these days with you? Yeah. And your point is very well taken. Ghee doesn't have any of the mischievous animal casein. And so, yeah, I, I'm fine with it. Key. Okay. Yep. So we don't have to go every, through every point, but you also talk about fiber, fermented foods. And, and what I thought was interesting because I think more and more people are talking about it. And as we think about accessibility and what everyone can do is cold therapy, hot therapy. If you think about the shower, for example, cold, hot, I, I shower every day. I have the time to shower. I don't need extra resources. I don't need to go buy anything. I'm already doing it. So I think that's interesting. And want to spend some time on that. How should we be thinking about, you know, cold versus hot? Well, you know, I've written about cold and hot therapy for years because as a heart surgeon, we discovered a compound uh, called heat shock protein. And it turns out that heat shock proteins were elaborated in exposure to extreme heat. And what we didn't know at that time was that we knew that heat shock proteins could profoundly protect heart cells from damage. And that's cool if you're going to oh, cut off the blood supply to the heart for an hour or for 24 hours for heart transplant. So we could actually stimulate heat shock protein production in the heart and prove, and we wrote some papers about this, that you could protect the heart muscle with this. So it turns out that jumping in a sauna or coming to Palm Springs in the summer is actually a great way to make heat shock proteins. Fast forward, well, how do heat shock proteins benefit you? It turns out that heat shock proteins uncouple mitochondria. It tells mitochondria, look out, something really bad is about to happen and protect yourself at all costs. And 
Some people refer to this as hormesis, and I've certainly talked a lot about hormesis. That which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. But this actually takes hormesis to another level. It's the underlying mechanism of why all these seemingly bad things work. Now we go to cold. It's the same thing. Cold also tells mitochondria, look out, you know, this is not good. You're going to be into a shock and save yourself. Who cares about anybody else? Protect yourself at all costs. And they do this by uncoupling. Now, I should mention that there's a second feature of uncoupling that is equally important. So mitochondria are told to uncouple and protect themselves, but they're also told to make more of themselves. Now, the cool thing about mitochondria is they have their own DNA. So mitochondria can grow and divide separately from cell division, but they have to be instructed to make more of themselves. And it turns out that these compounds, like polyphenols, like ketones, instruct mitochondria to make more of themselves, to share the workload. I like to use the example, let's suppose you've got a, a dog sled and you got one dog, one mitochondria. Imagine if we put six dogs on that dog sled. Well, now each dog only has to do a fifth of the work that the one dog did. And so you've got less work by each animal, but you're actually going faster than the one dog could have ever pulled you. And that's actually the principle of mitochondrial uncoupling. It not only tells mitochondria to relax and not work so hard, but make more of yourself simultaneously. So I, I want to bring it back to the shower because I'm very curious, it, it, can we hack this in our own shower? Is it, a, is it as simple as, you know, going cold for 30 seconds and then going back to hot for a minute or starting with hot and going cold? Like, can, can we do this yes. in our shower? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think in Wim Hof and other people have shown that this is incredibly activated of mitochondrial production. Yeah. And so most people, you can tolerate five seconds of cold. It's really uncomfortable, but then tolerate that for a week, turn it up to 10 seconds the next week, work your way up gradually. You don't go running a marathon by stepping out the door and going 26.2 miles. You build up to it. And a lot of people somehow think, oh my gosh, I got to take an hour. I got to take a minute of cold in a shower. I got news for you. That's just no fun when you haven't done it and people just don't do it. So gradual. So then my question is, do you go cold, then hot, or do you go hot, then cold? To me, it's easier to go hot than cold. So that's what I do. Okay. But no benefit, no health benefit reversing that, or does it matter at all, whether you go cold, then hot or hot, then cold? You know, I don't think so because you're going to get, you're, you want these contrasting effects and, and certainly, you know, the Nor the Swedes and the Norwegians and the Finns and the Scandinavians have known this for eons, the, the idea that they should be you know, going from sauna to ice cold water back again. And it works. Uh, that's one of the reasons, despite their diet, they have some fascinatingly good health. Fascinating. So something else I, I thought was so interesting and you're such a great storyteller, the French. What can we learn from the French? Yeah, you know, the, the food editor for Vogue, Jeffrey Steingart, actually has written two books. So one that was called, I can't believe I ate the whole thing. And the other one's called the man who ate everything. And 
one of his chapters was, why aren't the French all dead? And the point of it was that the French eat, you know, huge amounts of cheese and butter. The French eat three times the amount of cheese and butter as Americans. And yet the French have a third of the coronary artery disease of, of Americans. And he's going, but you know, they, if you follow all the rules, you know, they literally ought to be clogging up all their blood vessels and dropping dead. And in fact, I mentioned uh, Toulouse, which is a city in uh, Southwest France that I visited. Uh, we actually had a nutrition conference in Toulouse, if you can imagine. And you know, Toulouse has got pâté and goose liver pâté and sausages, and they actually have the highest fat consumption of, of any French area, and yet they have the lowest heart disease risk. So that, and I was actually talking with Tim Spector from uh, Great Britain, the famous twin study doctor, and Tim makes a very strong argument that he says, you know, folks, we got to stop beating up on cheese. I've looked at lots of cheese studies and there's not one cheese study that can even find a bad effect of cheese. But in fact, there's a lot of studies that say cheese is good for you. And so, you know, you're going, well, wait a minute, you know, uh, the man who ate everything, the French are not falling dead. So I decided to start looking at blue zones again. And as you know, or many people know, I'm really the only nutritionist who's ever spent most of his life in a blue zone, La Melinda, California. So I get, I guess I get to talk about blue zones. So one of the intriguing things that when I was at Loma Linda, the Loma Linda cafeteria is a vegetarian cafeteria, as are most Adventists. 50% of the calories in the Adventist diet is fat. And most of the fat comes from cheese. And I, I was blown away when I went there. I went, oh my gosh, you know, you guys, are, there's cheese everywhere. There's cheese on, you know, on all the fake meat. And you know, guys are killing each other. And of course they weren't. So then you look at Sardinia and you look at the Nagoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. And these are two of Dan Butner's blue zones. But hold on a minute. The Sardinians with extreme longevity are the Sardinians who live up on the top of the mountain. And they are goat and sheep herders. The Sardinians who live down by the ocean have been compared to these guys. And the Sardinians who live down by the, by the ocean have no improved longevity. It's only the guys who live up top. And you, when you break down what the difference was, they're all eating grains and beans, no doubt about it. But only the guys up top are eating goat and sheep cheese products. And it's actually the effect of these products that was uncoupling their mitochondria because of the MCTs and also the polyamines in these cheese products. Now let's go to the Nagoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. These guys eat tons of beans, eat tons of corn, but so does everybody else in Costa Rica. But it's only this one peninsula that has longevity. What do you think they're raising on the Nagoya Peninsula that they don't have in the rest of Costa Rica? Goats and sheep. And these guys, there's a cool paper, we actually cut it from the book, darn it, that says that it's the cheese that these guys are eating and all the goat and milk products that differentiates them from everybody else who's eating everything else but that. So there's two blue zones and probably Loma Linda as well 
that cheese is the secret to their long lifespan. And who would have guessed? So I'm assuming it's the non-A1 casein cheese? Yeah. So, yeah. So goats and sheep are casein A2. Yes. And again, the cool thing about them, which I didn't know until I started looking into this, is that 30% of their fat is MCTs. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Well, Dr. Gundry, always a pleasure uh, unlocking the keto code. Another fascinating read. Always great to have you. Thanks a lot, Jason. Yeah, this, folks, this is a fun book is all I can say. It, it just, hopefully light bulbs will go on like when you read The Plant Paradox. And it's just a, a cool new way to look at this stuff. 